us, we are going to be in 1 Kings uh, chapter 21 as we continue our way uh, through the story of Elijah and Elisha. Now this morning we're going to see first uh, King Ahab and he's kind of at his vac- one of his vacation palaces, if you will, and we'll see what ensues as, he's, as he is there. Let, let's read now, starting at verse 1. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will uh, give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, and he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down in his bed, and he turned away his face, and he would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need you with us this morning as we look to your word. Oh, Father, would you speak to us through it? Holy Spirit, would you be at work on our hearts, softening us, that we might hear the good news of our Savior, even through the story in 1 Kings. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure many of you, at some point or another, you've seen that old movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and you may remember when they make their way into that room with the geeses that lay the golden eggs, right? And you may remember that character who desperately wanted the golden egg, Veruca Salt. And what did she say? I want it, and I want it now. Isn't that us sometimes? Maybe too often than we would like. Could be material things, it could be relational things, it could be power, prestige, approval, whatever it is, we want it, and we want it now. That's the Ahab that we encounter in our passage, isn't it? Ahab, you know, I don't know, is he sitting out on his back porch or whatever, and he sees this nice vineyard next door, and he begins to desire it, he begins to covet it. He begins to even make plans in his head for it. Oh, I will turn it into a nice vegetable garden. Let's not miss. It's at this moment that Ahab's sin has already started. It's already started with that illicit desire for something that was not his. And we see how wrong-hearted he is. is What does he want to do with this beautiful vineyard? He wants to turn it into a vegetable garden And you might think, well, that's not necessarily that bad of an idea. But then we're reminded of what Moses taught the people as they were going to enter into the promised land. He said, this promised land, it's not like Egypt with its vegetable gardens. This is a land with vineyards that flows with milk and honey. And what does Ahab want? He wants to turn this beautiful vineyard into a vegetable garden. What does Naboth say? Verse 3, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And here we see, and let's not miss it, Naboth's faith. Last week, Elijah was told that there were 7,000 faithful in Israel, and here we meet one of those faithful. 
Naboth clearly knows God's word. How do we know that? Leviticus 25 says this, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. You, you see, there were only certain cases where the land could be sold. It was whenever poverty was in case. And even then, you didn't really sell it. You could get it back in the year of Jubilee. There could be a kinsman redeemer. There wasn't this selling of your land. Why? Because you were supposed to trust in God's provision for you. And as one of the faithful Naboth, he can't imagine not, not trusting in what God has provided for him. And even when financial gain is offered to him, you know, a better vineyard, he can't imagine it. Now, trans, you know, think of that in contrast to, to Ahab. Ahab, he goes home and he has a pity party, doesn't he? Verse 4, Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen. He lay down on his bed. He turned away his face. He would not eat. Jezebel comes into the house. Why is your spirit so vexed that you do not eat? And he basically responds saying, I asked Naboth for a vineyard, but he won't give it to me. I mean, you do hear that, right, in this text? That's, that's what he does. He's a whining little brat. He's like Veruca Salt. I want it, and I want it now. Now, parents, you may be thinking, oh, this is a lot like our toddler. Um, or a lot like my, my kids, my, even my older kids. Let's not miss. This is all of us, isn't it? We all act like this. We may know how to present ourselves a little bit better, but we all get upset. Kids, don't you get upset and whine when you don't win that game or you don't get that thing that you really want at the store? Adults, don't we whine and complain when we have that house that our hearts are set upon and somebody else buys it out from underneath us or you don't get that job? Your kids don't get into the school that you want. You don't get that approval that you know you deserve and what do we do? We think our life is somehow over because we want it, and we want it now, and we don't get it. Compare that to Naboth. Here he was, saying no to the king. And he has to know that's not going to go well for, for you to say no to the king. Surely he's heard the horror stories of Ahab and Jezebel. Yet what does he choose? He chooses contentment in what God has given him. He doesn't need something bigger and better. He doesn't need a better vineyard. He doesn't need to trade up to something else. He chose to trust and find contentment in God's provision. And he chose to find it regardless of the implications that it might have for his life. And what are those implications? We read about those starting in verse 7. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with a seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it is written in the letters that she had sent them, they proclaimed a fast. They set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in. They sat opposite him, and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. 
So they took him outside the city. They stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. What an, what an atrocity. How the king and his minions use their power over Naboth to kill him, to murder him. I'm reminded of that character in the Lord of the Rings, Saruman. He was a wise and respected wizard, if you know the story at all. He was once, in fact, one of the wizards that was sent to Middle Earth to help the people battle against Sauron, the Dark Lord. And what happened to him? He slowly became corrupted by his desire for power and his desire for control. Aragon said this once. He was as great as his fame made. His knowledge was deep. His thought was subtle. His hands marvelously skilled. He had a power over the minds of others. The wise he could persuade. And the smaller folks he could daunt. But what does he go on to say? That power he still keeps There are not many in Middle Earth that I should say were safe if they were left alone to talk to him. What did he begin to use? He began to use these great powers that he had first used for good. He began to use them for evil, evil, to pursue his own in Saruman, the one who was once wise and respected, slowly shaped by his desire for power and control, a pursuit of his own glory. We see someone very similar in Ahab this morning, don't we? A king who has great power, and he, as the king of Israel, what is he called to do? He's called to use that power for the good of his people. But what does he do? Now, some of you may say, well, well, look at the story. Isn't this all Jezebel's doing, right? Doesn't Jezebel do all of this? I think that would be a very tragic mistake, in fact, we'll see and we'll read in a minute how when the Lord sends Elijah to go to Ahab, he's to, what, call him out for murder. Ahab murdered, let's not miss it, Naboth. It starts with that illicit desire that he has for that plot of land that he wants to turn into a vegetable plot. And it continues, let's not miss it, it continues whenever he lies to Jezebel. Look at verse 6, I don't know if you noticed it. What does he say? What does he tell Jezebel? Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. What's missing? There's no reference to the fact that Naboth refused to give him the land because he was being faithful, because he was trying to follow God's word. Ahab lies by removing a piece of the truth, don't miss that that is lying, so that he can get what he wants. And don't think for a moment that that Ahab is somehow being naive in this story. He's using his pouting to get exactly what he wants. He's using his, his, his dissection of the truth. He's using his lying to get exactly what he wants. 
Ahab. He's guilty. Even though he could go off and say, and no doubt this is part of it, he could go off and say, oh, I never told her to do that. Oh, even, if, even as he was passive, he was guilty. Please don't miss it. He had a whole system. He built up a whole system around him to make his whims come true. And what happens? Jezebel hears Ahab's words. And as a good sidekick to Ahab, she knows exactly what to do. She knows exactly what Ahab wants. What does she do? We begin to see it in verse 7. First, she gives him a little pep talk, if you will. Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. In a way, starting off good in the sense that she's rightly calling out Ahab for his behavior. He's not acting like a king. But then she encourages him to act like what? Like all the pagan kings around him. Exerting their power for their own good, for their own glory. Jezebel, she immediately gets to work. She writes letters to the leaders of the town, telling them to to bring along two worthless fellows, to bring up charges against Naboth for cursing God and for cursing the king and to have him stoned. And all of this she seals with Ahab's seal. And there again we see Ahab's involvement, don't we? Now maybe he could say, oh, I just left the seal on my desk. She must have grabbed it. (laughs) The author of Kings puts it in here. Very, it's here for a reason, so that we can know he is involved, even if he did happen to just leave it out so that she could use it. It's building a case against Ahab. This abuse of power, though, it doesn't just stop with Ahab and Jezebel. It extends on to the leaders of this town, doesn't it? The elders and the leaders of Naboth City, and they're only too happy to join in. Only too happy to do the bidding of the king ethics? What does scripture say? They say, who cares? Who cares? If we do this, it's going to indebt the king to us. It'll be for our good. If Naboth needs to die so that we can gain, so be it. So be it. It's worth it. And maybe they even said, well, if the king wants it, it must be for the greater good, even if it doesn't line up with scripture, even if though it looks a whole lot like murder. Ahab wants it, so it must be good. It must be for the good. He's the king. It must be okay. And what happens, verse 13? Two worthless men come in, sat opposite him, and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death with stones. The man of God in our passage has been killed so that Ahab can grow his estate, so he can add on a little vegetable garden. Ultimately, for incredibly selfish motives, isn't it? Now, he doesn't even really have a big grand plan for it. The, the picture is almost like he was sitting out back of his house one day, and he saw it, and he's like, oh, that would make a great vegetable garden. And on a selfish whim, he goes about advantaging himself, doesn't he? Some of you heard me share this before, but I'll share it again. When I was in seminary, one of my professors, Bruce Waltke, one of the most humble, wise men, never raised your voice, just one day he came into class and he was very upset. Um, One of the things that happened at seminary was the professors would put books on reserve 
And these books were put on reserve because there would be required reading in those books for us. And you'd have to go and you'd have to read them in the library, but at the library, if you happen to be reading them at the end of the day, you could check them out for the day, but you had to bring them back at 8 o'clock the next morning whenever the library opened. Well, Dr. Waltke had gotten word that some had been keeping out there for days and days and days for their own wealth so they could be at home reading it at their own pace. And Dr. Walkie came in and he told us about that. And then he added, he didn't say much, but he said this. He said, I want to share with you, do you know the, what the essence of evil is? He said, it's advantaging yourself to the disadvantage of others. He knew, I think, what one might be willing to do in small things, like checking out a book from the library to the disadvantage of others, one might be willing to slowly begin to do in bigger things, especially to a group of men who are going to go out and be ministering in Christ's church. How do we put this story that we have before us in categories for us, this incredible atrocity that takes place? I think it is before us an illustration of the danger of power and leadership when it's not wielded well. We have in in our story a, a willingness to do whatever it takes to get power. Ahab, willing to murder a man for a vegetable garden. Jezebel, willing to have a man murdered just to make her husband happy. Elders and leaders willing to participate in murder to advance themselves. Now, we may say, well, thankfully, I'm not like them. I haven't committed this kind of atrocity, and surely we haven't. But we do need to understand that we all exercise power. And do you exercise the power that you have appropriately? Do you exercise it properly? Diane Langberg puts it this way. Power with others for the sake of the other and the sake of the common good leads to flourishing. It can be for the good. Power over others for the sake of personal benefit leads to destruction. And isn't that precisely what we see in the story? How do you handle the power that you have? How do you handle the power that you have in your family, in the relationships that exist there, in the workplace? In all the relationships you have in your life, how do you exert power? And, and, and we all have it. Now, kids, you might be saying, well, I don't have any power, you know. I, I just have to do what my parents tell me. But, oh, you have power. You have power with your siblings. You know that. And we all know that with one artfully placed word, we can exert incredible power as we bring great pain to an individual, can't we? We all have power. How will we use that power that has been entrusted to us? The story of Naboth is one where everyone is using their their power to advantage themselves to the disadvantage of others. And you and I, we're, we're tempted to do that every day, aren't we? Will you choose in your relationships, wherever they are, will you choose to use them as power to your own advantage? Or you use it as an opportunity to serve, to bless, to minister to others so that, as Diane says, that they might flourish. Now, this potential misuse of power 
for selfish gain, it can find its way into Christ's church. Many of you, many of us, have unfortunately seen this in the church. I pray that it will not rear its ugly head in our church. But we must remember that we are all sinners. And I say that not as an excuse, but to acknowledge that we all are susceptible to the abuse of power, to abuse that power that we have, tempted to use it for our own advantage. Can I ask that you might help keep your elders, your pastors accountable in this regard? That as we lead the church, we are ultimately called to lead it as Christ leads. And how did he lead? We read about it in Mark 10, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Please, please don't fear to come and speak to us if you find us not leading as Christ leads. And please be praying that we would lead as our Savior has led us. Now, what happens with this great abuse of power? Where does it lead? What happens with it? We read as we continue on, verse 17. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lift up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick up your blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you. Because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring great disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me. Because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab who Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. As I read that, I was reminded of Genesis chapter 4. When the Lord speaks, what does he say? He says, the voice, the voice of your brother's blood, the voice of Abel's blood, is crying out to me from the ground. In a similar way, I think our passage is Naboth's blood crying out for justice. Naboth is almost a background character in the story as you read it. 
Yet his name is mentioned far more than anyone else's name. It's mentioned over and over and over again, emphasizing, I think, the centrality of this. That his blood is crying out for justice, for the atrocity committed against him. In our text, what is it ultimately trying to make sense of? We can't go into all the depths of, of this prophecy against him, but it makes clear that the suffering of God's saints does not go unnoticed. He sees it. And he will bring justice. And so what do we see here? Him bringing justice to Ahab, the one who is guilty of murder. And bringing justice to anyone who belongs to Ahab. We see him bringing justice to to Jezebel. They will pay for the atrocity that they have committed. Naboth's blood cries out. And the Lord hears. And the Lord brings justice. And he will bring justice perfectly on that last day. And we can hope and we can have confidence in that. We might not always understand his timing. Like, why didn't you send Elijah earlier? Couldn't this have been stopped? Couldn't we have avoided this? We don't really have the answer to that question. But we do have here before us that we can have confidence that God will bring his perfect justice. And it's that, in a way, that makes the last part of our passage so surprising. Verse 27. When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his flesh, he fasted, he lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. (laughs) Ahab does the unexpected. He humbles himself. He literally puts on the garbs the clothing of repentance. Why? No doubt he's been caught. He's afraid. He's trying to avoid the consequences. No doubt. But is this true repentance? What does true repentance look like? True repentance is not momentary. True repentance requires change. As things flesh out in Ahab's story, if we were to continue on, it makes clear that Ahab's repentance is not genuine. It's not deep. You see, the evaluation of our repentance isn't seen in the moment when we're caught or when we're trying to escape the consequences of our sin. It's seen in the weeks, the months, the years that follow. That's where we see if it's true repentance or not. If Ahab were truly repentant in the story, what would we have seen? We would have seen a long-term life change in his life, wouldn't we have? We would have seen him going and tearing down those false places of worship 
We would have seen him leading his country in the true worship that they were called to. We would see him bringing restitution to the family of Naboth. All of these are absent. It's momentary repentance is all we see in the story. We just see Ahab put on the clothing, (laughs) the garb of repentance. But it doesn't appear to be true heartfelt repentance. How often does your repentance look like that? How often does your repentance just look like what you're trying to do to get out of trouble, to restore the relationship immediately, looking for a quick fix to the situation? How often do you and I fail to exhibit true, true repentance? And so as we see this lack seemingly in Ahab of what we know to be a genuine repentance, it, it makes it so surprising and so startling to us when God brings mercy into the picture. It's so startling. We, we want justice to be brought to Ahab, right? And we struggle when God, when Yahweh, he comes in and he brings mercy upon Ahab. We forget sometimes that God is a God who delights in mercy. <laughs> Here he says to Elijah, and I don't mean this to be irreverent. I don't think it is because I think this is kind of how the text reads. It's almost like Yahweh is it's excitingly telling Elijah, almost like you know, kind of knocking him with the shoulders. You, do you see the effects of your words? Verse 29, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself? And so what does God do? He postpones Ahab's judgment. Now let's not forget that. Justice is still brought. He's not removing Ahab's justice. He's just kicking the can down the road a little bit. He's postponing it. Now, we aren't told what Elijah's reactions are to this. But I think I unfortunately know what my reaction would be. Come on, God. You, you know this isn't genuine. You know he's just putting on the garb. He's just, he's just sad he got caught. We don't want God to respond to Ahab this way. We want judgment. Yet God brings mercy, even knowing that Ahab's repentance is ingenuine. It's incredible. The depths of his mercy. As we question God's mercy to Ahab, it's interesting that we don't do the same for ourselves. We need to remember, all of us here this morning, that we are no better than Ahab. Do you really believe that? Do you really know that? Do you really believe Paul's words in Romans 3 that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God? Or is that just reserved for the Ahabs of the world? In our story, Naboth's death, his life and his death, They point us to something. They point us to the need that we have for a savior. 
This tragic story reminds us that blood must be shed for sin, but not Naboth's blood. His, his blood didn't accomplish what was needed, does it? It doesn't accomplish redemption. He did, in fact, die because of other sins. But that death is unable to bring redemption. There was a better blood that was needed. The blood of Jesus that the author of Hebrews tells us speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There was a better, a greater Naboth to come. One who, like Naboth, lived faithfully. And one who, oddly enough, or maybe not that oddly, is accused of the exact same crimes as Naboth. Blasphemy against God, treason against Caesar the king. As we see the story, I think we see a demonstration of a wonderful principle that the Apostle Peter speaks about in 2 Peter, that the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, how can that take place? That's able to take place through a better Naboth, who, as Peter says in 1 Peter, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We are able to be saved, forgiven for our sins, washed completely clean, and get this 100% clean, completely. Even of the ways in which we've had our own little pity parties and said, I want it and I want it now. Even in the ways in which we've abused the power that God has entrusted to us and hurt people around us. Even those 100% absolved. Even those 100% forgiven. And it's in him, it's united to him that we are able to pursue true repentance. Not the paltry repentance of Ahab where you, you kind of put on the clothes of it and make it look really sad, and, but true, true, genuine repentance that has us turning from our sins and turning to Christ, believing the words of Paul in Romans that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The question for all of us today is, are you trusting in the blood of the better Naboth, Jesus Christ? Are you able to say this morning with confidence that he has redeemed you and that he is the one who is able to break sin's dominion in your life? that he is able to break the dominion of our I want it and I want it now attitude, that he is able to transform us, that we would no longer use our power for our own advantage to the disadvantage of others, but that we would use them as an opportunity. We would use the power entrusted to us as an opportunity to minister and to serve others.
as Christ has served us. Jesus is the one who saves. He is the one who through his spirit can bring true repentance to our lives. He is truly the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Do you believe it? Do you believe in the blood of the better Naboth, our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave everything for you? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning for the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ that was spilt for us. We thank you for his work on our behalf. That while we were yet sinners, our Savior, Jesus Christ, died for us. We thank you. We pray you would help us to learn to trust you. To trust in your good plan for your people. Oh, Father, would you be removing from our lives those things that need to be removed? Would you be removing those tendencies to do whatever it takes to get what we want without respect to those who may be harmed around us? Oh, Father, we need you through the work of your Spirit to be at work on our hearts that this day and in the days to come we would be dying more and more to sin and seeking more and more to walk in the path of our Savior keeping in step with the Spirit. Oh, would you do your work in us, we pray. We pray all of it in the name of the one who shed his blood for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stay.